Witnessing the Muslims in Light of Islamic Eschatology For those who happen to employ biblical eschatology as an evangelistic apologetic, as is this author's role in ministry, it is inevitable encounters will occur with Muslims who claim Islam shares a similar view of the end times and the afterlife. In doing so, the Muslim will also be inclined to erroneously claim that Christianity and Islam share the same God. This false understanding of what each religion believes about the other's doctrines can impede both the Christian evangelist who is attempting to share the true gospel with the Muslim and the Muslim to whom the evangelist is witnessing to in understanding the salvific and eschatological role of the biblical Jesus. In order to deal with this problematic gap in understanding between the two faiths, this study seeks to equip the Christian evangelists with a cursory understanding of Islamic beliefs and their eschatological framework. Next, the Islamic view of the end times will be compared and contrasted to biblical revelation. And finally, with the hope that the reader will then possess a better understanding of where the Muslim is coming from doctrinally, a series of evangelistic methods will be proposed that are meant to open doors by which the Muslim can comfortably enter and connect to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Islam's Background This study will now begin with a cursory teaching about Islam's background and religious beliefs. To be a better witness, the Christian evangelist needs to get into the head of the Muslim. They aren't just crazy people, as many Westerners have been led to believe. Their seeds of reasoning germinate from their belief system. As explained by former Muslim sniper Tas Sa'ada about the days when he waged a terrorist war, the craziest, most psychotic people in the world considered themselves to be entirely rational and logical. Their logic is well constructed inside the fortress of their minds. Now, the term Islam means submission. Submission is what Islam is all about. And to be a Muslim then means one who submits. The word Muslim is both a noun and a verb. For in Arabic, mu plus Islam equates to someone practicing the act of Islam. We often hear people say that Islam is a religion, but is it just a religion? No, it is not. A Muslim is taught that Islam goes far beyond religion. Dr. Peter Hammond in his book, Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam, declares what Islam is not. He says Islam is not a religion, nor is a cult. In its fullest form, it is a complete, total, 100% system of life. Islam has religious, legal, political, economic, social, and military components. The religious component is foundational for all of the other components. That means that Islam is civil, it is cultural, it is military, and encompasses every aspect of a Muslim's life. Islam is way more than just a religion to them. Islamic Sharia law embodies the lifestyle of its founding century, the 7th century, as one Arabic theologian notes about Islam. It is locked into and fossilized in a mindset totally contrary to the 21st century. It opposes the progress and development of the Renaissance and Enlightening following the dark medieval ages of Europe and dreams of the distant past. Islam's Founder Islam was founded by a man named Muhammad ibn Abdullah. He was born in AD 570 to the powerful Arab Quraysh tribe, which ruled Mecca in Arabia. He was raised by a grandfather and later an uncle after his parents died. He began his career as a shepherd and taking care of camels. At 25 years old, Muhammad met a 40-year-old widow named Khadija. She was very wealthy, and when he married her, his money problems were over. Muhammad and Khadija had six children, and after Khadija died, Muhammad up marrying a total of 15 women, one per year. He would take these wives as spoils of war. He would take first cousins. Muhammad even forced his adopted son to divorce his wife, Zainab Jaish, after, after seeing her naked, so he lusted after her to be his own wife. 
Then at 54 years old, Muhammad took a little six-year-old girl by the name of Aisha to be his wife, and he later consummated that marriage when she turned a mere nine years old. When Muhammad was little, his nurse Halima claimed that he had fits from jinns, which is the source of the Arabic legends about genies. Jinns are evil spirits, demons, that the nurse reported tormented Muhammad constantly. And by age 40, his torment was so intense, it made him so crazy that he fled into a cave to commit suicide. Before Muhammad could kill himself, the legend goes that the angel Gabriel appeared to give Muhammad a message. Gabriel told him that his hometown of Mecca was too idolatrous. The people worshiped 360 different idols, one for each lunar calendar day. And the worship of these idols centered around a fallen meteor called the Kaaba. Muhammad's family god was Al-Ilah, or Allah, both the moon god and war god, which even today is represented by the crescent moon symbol. Gabriel supposedly told Muhammad that Allah must be the only God worshipped in Mecca. In response to the angel's message, Muhammad obeyed what the spirit told him and traveled back to Mecca. What he basically told the people was, I'm sorry, you cannot worship all of these gods anymore, but only my God Allah. The people of Mecca did not take kindly to that message, and so they drove Muhammad out of their city. Muhammad fled to a nearby town called Medina, and that date is the beginning of the Islamic calendar. The journey was called the Hira. While in Medina, Muhammad became a prophet. He kept sharing his given message, and to make a living, he pillaged the passing caravans. Over time, Muhammad raised 10,000 men to join him. With this army, he marched back to Mecca to conquer it, and was said, as Muhammad's armies advanced, the desert was black with horses and men. He spurred his army on with the promise of plunder, though a fifth of the money remained his. He also promised to pardon the people of their sins, and if his people took Mecca, they would be sure to go to heaven, where they would be given many virgins with very large eyes. These enticements were most effective in motivating his men to fight. And once Muhammad's army arrived in Mecca, he gave the populace an ultimatum. The penalty for those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and strive upon earth to cause corruption is none that they be killed or crucified or that their hands and feet be cut off from the opposite sides or they be exiled from the land. That is for them a disgrace in this world and for them in the hereafter a great punishment, Surah 533. Muhammad's message to the people of Mecca was basically, you join me or I'll chop your hands off or I'll kill you. Well, how did the people respond? Well, they joined him. Their ultimatum had been the driving force behind Islamic evangelism even to this very day. Now from Mecca, Muhammad branched out and began conquering the Arabian Peninsula. During the last 10 years of his life, Muhammad led a staggering 66 battles in one of these battles, after beheading a thousand defeated Jews, Muhammad's new religion then became known as the religion of the sword. Burdened by these long and bloody series of terrible battles, the daughter-in-law Muhammad took to be his wife had tired of all her family members dying, so Zainab poisoned him. Muhammad managed to spit the tainted food out in time, but he took enough in that, along with pneumonia, the combination killed him. And so, in AD 632, Muhammad was buried in Medina, and Muhammad's corpse is still there to this day. The Quran. The Christian evangelist should have some understanding of Islam's holy books. The first and primary is the Quran, or as it's translated into English, the Quran. The Quran is to the Muslim what the Bible is to the Christian. Quran means recitation. Muhammad was illiterate, meaning he could not read or write. So what he did was while he convulsed and translated states possession, he would perform automatic writing on bones and strips of linen and anything else he could find lying around. Scribes would surround Muhammad while he lashed about in these fits and recorded what he said. 
Muhammad also taught excerpts from the teachings of Moses, Jesus, and Zoroaster, who was a Persian religious pedagogue. These teachings, along with his own fitful recitations over the years, formed the Quran. Its length became about as long as the New Testament. Many different collections of these recitations existed before a book was finally compiled into one authoritative version in the Arabic language, the language of Allah. Because Arabic is considered Allah's heavenly language, as Allah supposedly wrote the Quran on a table-sized stone tablet in heaven before passing his teachings on to Muhammad, Muslims believe no mortal man should translate the Quran into anything other than the pure Arabic. Historical errors are resplendent throughout the Quran, though. For instance, it says that Jesus was born of Mary, the sister of Moses. The Quran also claims that Jesus did not die on the cross, rather Judas Iscariot replaced Jesus. The Quran also claims that Jesus is not the Son of God, and to claim otherwise is considered blasphemy. The Quran also claims that Samaritans tricked the Israelites at the Exodus, even though as a people group, the Samaritans did not exist until hundreds of years after the Exodus during the exile. Muhammad also claimed that Alexander the Great was a Muslim, even though Alexander had lived 900 years before Muhammad founded his religion. Muhammad made some other very interesting teachings concerning women, for despite 15 wives, he often found women offensive. He taught in a Hadith that women are deficient in mind, that the majority of the people in hell will be women, and that women are a bad omen. The Hadith. The second Islamic holy book is called the Hadith, which means the report. Al-Bukhari's authoritative version is a compilation of 7,000 genuine traditional sayings, what Muhammad supposedly said, in a, supposedly, because the book was compiled some 200 years after Muhammad had died. The Hadith helps people act just like Muhammad, so if a Muslim wants to know what Muhammad believed or thought, they go to the Hadith. Christians live by what would Jesus do, Muslims through the Hadith live by what would Muhammad do. Muslims can look to the Hadith to know exactly what Muhammad would have done. So for example, if Muhammad needed to money, then go raid a caravan as he did. If one needed to lie to advance their cause, well, that would be okay, for that's what Muhammad did. If one desired to take more than one wife, well, Muhammad limited men to only to having four wives, even though he amassed many more. Muhammad also prescribed medical advice in the Hadith. Drinking camel urine will make one healthy. A fly in one's drink can cure disease. Muhammad claimed that fever comes from the heat of hell itself, and if you speak badly about a deceased person, that person will go to hell. Islam's God Remember that Muhammad was supposedly told by the angel Gabriel that his family god, Allah, the moon god, was the one true god that all people should worship him alone. Understanding this point is vitally important to the evangelist, for so many people today, especially in the media, are earnestly claiming that Islam and Christianity worship the same god. It is simple to conclude that Jehovah God of the Bible is not at all Islam's Allah when their characteristics are placed beside each other. Allah is described in Unitarian monotheistic terms, meaning he is only one being. Allah is not a trinity consisting of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as is Jehovah. To even say that Allah is Trinitarian to a Muslim is called shirk, a term that means idolatry. Allah to the Muslims is distant and unknowable. He's unpredictable concerning salvation, and he does not assure salvation. He reveals his will, but never himself. The relationship between Allah and a Muslim is master and slave, not father and son. Allah determines all, there, so no free will exists in his religion. He created both good and evil. He is feared by his followers, and he has no love for his own people. 
It could be concluded, based on the Quran's description of Allah, that he's far less of the characteristics of the God of the Bible and more a likeness to the biblical character of Satan. So should anyone claim that Muhammad was equating the God of the Bible to the Allah of Islam is not speaking the truth. Jehovah and Allah are totally different entities. As missionary evangelist Lestad Sumrall compares, Muslims worship one God and we Christians worship one God, but there all similarity ends. Muhammad's God is radically different from God as he is revealed to us in the Bible. Muhammad's God is a spiteful, selfish autocrat who must be placated with a monotonous routine of holy motions. The God we worship is a loving, compassionate Father who has only that we love Him in return and obey Him. John 14, 15. Islam's Doctrines The Islamic belief system consists of five main areas of doctrine. The first concerning Allah has already been addressed. The second doctrinal error involves angels. Islam teaches there is a hierarchy of angels. Each person is assigned two angels. One records all the good deeds one does, and the other records all of the bad deeds. The third area of doctrine involves Islam's holy books, the Quran and Hadith, which also have been addressed. Though Islam does also consider the Torah of Moses, the Psalms of David, and the Gospel of Jesus, along with the Quran, as all holy books. Of course, Islam teaches that the Quran supersedes all other holy books. The fourth area of doctrine involves the prophets. While the Quran mentions 28 specific prophets of Allah, Islam identifies well over 100,000 prophets. The list even includes Adam, Noah, and Jesus, though Muslims consider Muhammad the greatest of them all. The fifth area is doctrine, concerns the belief in a future judgment, which will be addressed shortly. For Muslims to work towards attaining entry into paradise, they must follow what is called the five pillars of Islam. The first pillar is called the creed, or the shahada, which means to bear witness. The following creed is what a person must say in order to become a Muslim. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. This is the Islamic version of the Christian believer's prayer. The second pillar involves prayers called the Salat. A Muslim will pray five times a day, dawn, noon, afternoon, evening, and nighttime. And they will always pray kneeling face down and towards Mecca. The third pillar involves giving alms to the poor, which is called Zakat. One twentieth of a Muslim's income goes to benefit orphans and widows and for building mosques. The fourth pillar involves fasting called the Psalm. Psalm came from Islam's precursor religion, Sabanianism, which worships the moon and other heavenly bodies by fasting. During Ramadan, which is the ninth month of their lunar year, Muslims will abstain from all foods and drink and sex during the daylight hours, but when night falls, they can indulge in whatever they wish. The fifth pillar is called the pilgrimage or the Hajj. Every Muslim must travel at least once during their life to Mecca to walk around the Kaaba stone. And should a Muslim be too infirmed, he can send a representative to take his place. Muslims must make a pilgrimage to Mecca in order to attain entry into paradise. Many Muslims, especially the Karajite sect, would also argue that there's an unspoken sixth pillar, which is called jihad, meaning the struggle or to strive. Allah wills that the Muslim take up the armed struggle for Islam against what they call the infidels and apostates, meaning the unbelievers, Surah 2, 186-190. Islam's divisions. Three main divisions and some 150 sects are incorporated into Islam. The first division is the Sunnis, who number about 80% of the Islamic population. Sunni means the trodden path or tradition. They desire to live a life in the pattern of Muhammad. They elect leaders and they follow the Islamic code to the best of their ability. The second division consists of the Shiites. They number much smaller than the Sunnis. 
This division bitterly broke away after the death of Ali, the fourth caliph, meaning the successor to Muhammad, because they believed that a descendant of Muhammad must be their leader. The Shiites believed that authority derives through Muhammad's family line alone through Ali's descendants and that this family line of imams or leaders are viewed as almost sinless and can be the only interpreters of the Quran. The third division is called the Sufis and they're the mystics. They believe God must be experienced. Islam spread. A mere few decades after Muhammad had died, the warriors of Islam blitzkrieged across the Middle East and conquered Northern Africa, conquering those lands in Allah's name. With the strategy of marching an army into a town and declaring, we will kill you unless you convert, formerly Christianized lands evaporated overnight. Islam spread so fast that their armies were on the doorsteps of France in AD 732 and Vienna in AD 1529. Islam has consistently through the centuries yearned to fly their flag over all of Europe. Today, Islam stands out as the second fastest growing religion and is well on its way to becoming the largest religion in the entire world, second only to Christianity in all of its forms. Some 20% of the global population or 1.2 billion people claim to be Muslims. In the last 50 years alone, Islam has grown 500% as its birth rate dwarfs the birth rate of Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and Jews. Islamic dominated nations now number 65. Some 1,400 mosques have been built in the United States, with 90% of those funded by the militant jihadist Wahhabi Sunnis based in Saudi Arabia. This has led one Egyptian expert on Islam to note, the spread of Islam today is greater than it has been at any other point in history, so much so that Islam is no longer over there in the Eastern Hemisphere, now it is on our doorstep. Islam grew so quickly across the world that the Catholic Church had to concede there are now more Muslims than Catholics. Islam achieving this by employing two primary growth strategies. The first strategy, and the one most people recognize in the West, is the strategy of jihad. Jihad, as stated earlier, means the struggle or to strive to do the will of Allah. In its essence, jihad is the armed struggle for Islam against the infidels and apostates. In 1938, the Islamic Brotherhood's Hassan al-Banna explained that jihad, a true Muslim, will love death more than life. There are 123 verses in the Quran that talk about the jihad, leading a member of the Islamic Liberation Party to note at a London rally in August 1994, there are 123 verses in the Quran about killing and fighting. Ours is not a passive religion. Some Muslims will claim that the earlier verses in the Quran are more peaceful, and those are the ones Islam truly follows. But Islam teaches that later verses abrogate or replace earlier verses. The reason why these verses called for peace was that in the beginning, Muhammad was attempting to get Christians and Jews to join his cause. They refused. So in response, he fostered a virulent hatred of both. So the latter verses, which talk about killing Jews and Christians, are the actual verses Muslims are supposed to follow and teach due to the practice of abrogation. Surah 9.5 provides an example of the Quran commanding the death of the infidel. Fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them and beleaguer them and lie in wait for them in every stratagem. Surah 2, 191-192 teaches that a Muslim must kill the unbeliever and kill them wherever you find them and drive them out whence they drove you out and persecution is severer than slaughter and if they fight you, then slay them. Such is the recompense of the unbeliever. Surah 9.29 teaches that the conquered infidels can be allowed to live as long as they become second-class citizens and pay a special tax. 
Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his prophet, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are of the people of the book, the Christians, until they pay the jizya tax with a willing, uh, with a willing submission and find themselves subdued. The Hadith in Book 041, number 6985, also commands the killing of the Jews. The last hour would not come unless the Muslims will fight against the Jews, and the Muslims would kill them until the Jews would hide themselves behind a stone or a tree, and a stone or a tree would say, Muslim, or the servant of Allah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Well, what fuels jihad? The answer, the promise of paradise. The only assurance a Muslim has been given that they will make it into paradise is by the killing the infidel. Surah 47, 4-7 teaches, When you meet unbelievers, smite their necks. And then when you have made wide slaughter among them, tie fast. And those who are slain in the way of God, he will not send their works astray. He will guide them and dispose their minds all right, and will admit them to the paradise that he has made known to them. The Muslim is also taught never to make a covenant or agreement or a treaty with an infidel, as Surah 489 commands. They wish you would disbelieve as they disbelieve, so you would be alike. So do not take from among them allies until they emigrate for the cause of Allah. But if they turn away, then seize them and kill them wherever you find them and take not from among them any ally or helper. These are the marching orders for Muslims as taught by the Islamic holy books. Islam's second growth strategy involves immigration. When able, unable to defeat a people group or nation militarily, then the second best strategy is to defeat them by moving one's population into an enemy land. As Muammar al-Qaddafi of Libya once said, there are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam in Europe without swords, without guns, without conquests. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. The 50 plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. Jihad and immigration. These are the two main strategy Islam uses to take over the world for Allah. As one expert on Islam notes, for Islam, the idea of mission is not to seek to bring about the mere intellectual and religious conversion of people. Instead, it is more concerned with the territorial expansion of Allah's kingdom. These strategies for territorial expansion are being played out today just as they were some 1400 years ago when Islam was founded. Population statistics project that Muslims will exceed 50% of the world's population by the end of the 21st century. Such staggering numbers have led historian Robert Payne to warn an apathetic West that Muslims are ruthless and at ease in a world where we are increasingly restless incapable of decisions. Therefore, sooner or later, we shall have to learn to live with them. Islam's view of Christianity. It is vitally important that the Christian evangelists understand how Muslims view Christianity, for their understanding of the Christian faith has been convoluted by the teaching of Muhammad and the Islamic Imams. They view Christianity through the colored lenses of Islam. For instance, Muslims believe the Bible as a holy book has been corrupted by Jews and Christians and so cannot be trusted, Surah 275 and 78 through 79. Ironically, Muslims are fine with reading the Bible and in fact, Muhammad endorsed doing so in Surah 5, 50, and 68. But Muslims may be allowed to read the Bible, but they consider it corrupted, so not worth their time reading, and will merely dismiss any verses presented to them. This response will require the evangelistic apologist to first point out that the biblical claim of being the inspired word of God, as 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 and 2 Peter 1-21 tell us. The apologist can also provide historical and archaeological evidence, such as the existence of 5,300 
near first century copies of New Testament manuscripts and 86,000 references by early church fathers and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which all corroborate the Bible's authority and shows that today's translations have not been corrupted whatsoever. Muslims also hold that God is only one being and that there is no trinity, so that any person who holds to a Trinitarian view of God are distastefully viewed as idolatrous. Muslims look at Christians as idolaters. The apologists will point out that the Bible reveals that God is three in one yet co-equal, Matthew 28.19 and 2 Corinthians 13.14. Islam also holds to a Genesis-type story. Muhammad taught that the humanity and everything else was created by a blood clot, Surah 23.14. The apologists will then point out that the Bible reveals that by the dust of the earth and the breath of God, mankind was recreated in his image, Genesis 1 and 2. When it comes to the doctrine of original sin, Muslims hold that people are born good. Islam even denies that mankind is plagued with the sin nature whatsoever. This flies in the face of Romans 3.23, which reveals that mankind is indeed born in sin and live with the sin nature. Muslims believe that salvation towards paradise only comes through submission to Allah and by performing good works. Islam vehemently holds to a works-based salvation. No saving faith nor grace is involved in salvation in Islam. So the Christian account of God's grace is a very difficult concept for the evangelist to convey. Interestingly, Muslims do actually hold to a belief in Jesus whom they call Isa el-Masih. Muslims claim that Jesus is sinless even though Muhammad ironically had to confess his sins, though his point is debatable within Islamic circles. The evangelist can discuss Jesus freely with the Muslim, but they see the Christian account as a corrupted version of what Muhammad clarified. Islamic Eschatology Contained within Islam's religious beliefs is its own system of eschatology, meaning its own particular views of future events. The following is what Islam teaches concerning the end times, primarily understood from the Hadith, which has incorporated elements of the Torah, New Testament, and Zoroastrianism. Not all Muslims believe in every or even some of these eschatological elements. Just as in Christianity, there are widely divergent views concerning the last days. But a belief in eschatology remains essential to a Muslim's belief system, Surah 2, 177. Bear in mind a number of prophecies and prophetic characters taught in Islam were incorporated from other religions. So some of these will sound familiar from the Bible. As Islamic professor Samuel Shahad points out, the Hadith was compiled at a time when Islamic authorities knew much more about the Bible and Christian traditions and literature. Thus, many Hadith passages were manufactured and embellished and were heavily influenced by Christian sources. Christians should not forget, though, that Islam is a man-made religion. Satan doesn't know how the end times are going to turn out, except from what he reads in the Bible. So as Islam's end time views are delineated, Christians should not be concerned that any of these events as foretold in the Hadith are actually going to happen. The Mahdi. Islam generally believes in a savior called the Mahdi. He will arrive during a time called the hour. There will be several very interesting major and minor signs that surround his coming, with the major signs standing absolutely non-negotiable in the Muslim mind. Some of the more fantastic minor signs include women outnumbering men 50 to 1, men will eat with their tongues like cows, time will contract, wild beasts will speak, and the Euphrates River will uncover a mountain of gold, and the Islamic world will be locked in a full-scale war of annihilation against the Jewish people. When that happens, the Mahdi will reveal himself. Islamic eschatology also has an antichrist figure called the Dajjal. Of course, since Islam teaches its adherents to hate the Jewish people, the Dajjal is supposedly going to be Jewish. 
The Dajjal is prophesied to be born in Iran. He has one eye, and the word infidel is actually tattooed right on his forehead, and he will lead an army of Jewish people. In response to the threat of the Dajjal and his army, the Mahdi shows up. Those Islamic sects led by the Iranian Ayatollahs call the Mahdi the 12th Imam. He was an infant who supposedly was hid in a well during the 9th century. Gita returns to fight to establish a millennium of perfect equity. The 12th Imam is a direct descendant of Muhammad. Jesus also plays a part in Islamic eschatology and is sometimes confused with the Mahdi. The Mahdi will lead Muslims along with Jesus against the Dajjal. Islam teaches that Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives, which they clip from the Bible, and he will defeat the Dajjal near Tel Aviv. He also defeats the Gog Magog invaders, a theme from Ezekiel 38 and 39, which they call the War of Yajuj and Majuj, Surah 18 and 21. Jesus then converts the world to Islam, breaks all the crosses, kills all the pigs, he marries, has children, and then he dies. The world during these battles will suffer through many natural disasters and assaults by dangerous beasts. Smoke will engulf the world. There will be landslides. The sun will begin rising from the west. Fire will round up all the people of Syria. Islamic eschatology also foretells a series of resurrections, three to be exact, the trumpet of terror, the trumpet of swoon, and the trumpet of the resurrection. That brings the world up to the day of reckoning. For a Muslim, the day of reckoning is like purgatory. Should a Muslim be considered the most faithful, even being the most devout of teachers, no matter what level of holiness a Muslim attains to, they're going to end up suffering for at least a little while. A Muslim must suffer because Islam believes in a works-based salvation. Allah arrives to judge each person based on their works. The two angels assigned to each person will lay their assigned person's deeds onto scales. And should the deeds be found worthy, the person is allowed to cross a bridge. Those who are unfaithful will fall off the bridge right into hell. There are still some chances to be saved after that, and so later be rescued from hell. Islam calls their heaven paradise. Seven levels exist in the Islamic paradise. Surah 4, 56-57 explains, But those who believe and do righteous deeds, we will admit them to gardens beneath which rivers flow, wherein they abide forever for them, with therein are purified spouses, and we will admit them to deepening shade. This surah and others explain that the martyrs who were slain in life for the advancement of Allah are promised in paradise to receive 72 voluptuous virgins for their huris or harem. Unlike Christianity, paradise is not a place of spiritual delight and communion with God. Rather, Allah remains off in the distance. He's aloof and unapproachable. Paradise for Muslims is all physical, all sensual, really all sexual, where women remain as they were in life mere chattel and playthings for men. One would wonder then why anyone would be interested in becoming a continual concubine throughout their eternal life. Some say it is worth it for the price of gaining eternal youth. There is a hell in Islamic eschatology. For those who go to hell, Surah 4, 56-57 says, Indeed, those who disbelieve in our verses, the infidels, we will drive them into a fire, and every time their skins are roasted through, we will replace them with other skins so they may taste the punishment. Indeed, Allah is ever exalted in might and wise. Hell, like paradise in Islam, also contains seven levels. An entire level of hell has been reserved just for Christians, and another level of hell reserved for the Jews. In keeping with Muhammad's disdain for women, there's a level of hell primarily reserved for the ladies. Not many women are going to make it into paradise because they are utterly dependent on strict obedience to their husbands in life, unless she is one of the eternal virgins. Although at a 72 to 1 ratio, it is quite questionable how this works out. 
Unfortunately for the Muslim female, hell exists primarily for women. Islam's Role in Biblical Eschatology When considering the rapid advancement of Islam around the world, a frequent question arises, will Islam inevitably conquer the world? Based on all indications and by every statistic, Islam appears to be well on its way to indeed conquer the world. That would result in churches eventually becoming mosques and children of every faith being forced to convert to Islam or die for refusing. That is the direction the world is plunging towards right now. Or is it? Bible prophecy would argue, no, praise the Lord, the world's children will not eventually all be forced into converting to Islam for a few reasons. Islam has an end according to the Bible. For instance, the regathering of the Jewish people. One of the things about Islam growing more and more powerful in the world is that no matter how much Satan uses Islam for evil, God will turn its deeds to good. For example, one of the side effects of Islam becoming more influential in the world and greatly increasing the persecution of the Jewish people has been the resulting regathering of the Jewish people back into the land of Israel. This is a fulfillment of God's promise that the Jews would one day return to their land in two predicted eschatological regatherings of Israel, one in unbelief in preparation for the tribulation period, which is well underway today, and the second one in faith for preparation for millennial blessings, Isaiah 11.12 and Micah 2.12. It could be argued that then that Islam is unintentionally helping Bible prophecy be fulfilled. God is using Islam to force the Jewish people to leave some 80 to 90 different nations and trek back to their homeland. For he says, When I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and am hallowed in their sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. Ezekiel 28.25 With the Jewish people making Aliyah by the tens of thousands and returning to the land that God has promised them, Israel as a nation was at last reborn on May 14, 1948, and took back control of Jerusalem during the Six-Day War on June 5 through 10, 1967. The result was the fulfillment of Zechariah 12, 2-3, which prophesied the Jewish control of Jerusalem would become a cup that causes all the surrounding neighboring nations, which all happen to be Islamic today, to become intoxicated with a religious passion to possess it. Israel would then face three prophetic wars according to the dispensational and premillennial eschatological framework that would appear to absolutely remove Islam as a viable religion in the end times. The Psalm 83 War The first end times war strikes the geographical heart of Islam and is commonly titled by its main proponent, Bill Salas, as the Psalm 83 War. This war centers on Israel dealing at last with its hostile bordering neighbors of Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Gaza, and Jordan, which Salas calls the Inner Ring. The continuous skirmishes and strenuous status quo tenuously balanced between Israel and our neighbors cannot provide lasting peace. No nation desires to exist under the daily threat of calls for annihilation by an imminent missile attack. And so, according to Asaph the seer's prophecy in Psalm 83, once his imprecatory prayer calling down judgment and justice upon Israel's enemies is finally fulfilled, Israel should control those bordering nations and gain a brief peace. This peace stands as a vital prerequisite for Israel entering the second prophetic war, the Gog-Magog battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, placing Israel into a peaceful and unsuspecting state. Since 1948, Israel has had to engage in many wars and ongoing skirmishes with its bordering neighbors and has not yet reached that peaceful precondition. Therefore, Psalm 83 is a prophecy still yet to be fulfilled. And once this prophetic war is over, Israel's dominance in the Middle East will be severely curtailed. The Gog-Magog War 
The second prophetic war which follows is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The Gog-Magog War is one of the best described prophetic wars in all of the Bible, covering two whole chapters. This catastrophic war will cause the world to radically change geopolitically. Briefly explained, the Gog-Magog War tells how Russia, Ross, along with Iran, Persia, Turkey, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Betagarma, Libya, Put, and other Islamic-dominated countries will form an outer ring coalition of nations. This coalition will be led by a personage called Gog, will seek war against Israel to plunder her, likely for obtaining the vast gas reserves off the coast of Israel. Gog rises from the former Soviet bloc nations, those which the first century Jewish historian Josephus identified as settled by Magog of the Magogians, thus named after him, but who by the Greeks are called the Scythians. Israel appears undefeatable after the Psalm 83 war, and so all of those nations combine into a juggernaut coalition in order to attempt to plunder and destroy Israel. Due to the uncountable number of soldiers which comprise these joint armies, these hordes, leave Israel with no military possibility of standing up against them. By sheer numbers, the nation of Israel appears doomed. But no, Ezekiel's prophecy reveals that God will make his grand appearance back on the earth, not physically, but he personally annihilates the invading hordes. He directs re-entry into world affairs as for the purpose that there will be no denying that God was behind this divine rescue. God intervenes against the invading coalition using biblical types of judgments such as fire and brimstone, turning the armies against each other and decimating them by earthquakes. God even rains fire down on the homelands of these invading nations. The entire coalition of Islamic armies along with Russia are practically utterly destroyed. The resulting Islamic world map after the Gog-Magog war shows the Islamic influence gutted throughout the middle, entire Middle East and North Africa. The Conventional War The third prophetic end-time war should hammer the nail in the coffin of Islamic influence. Revelation describes a horrific time period coming called the Tribulation. This seven-year time period will experience God pouring out His wrath upon the earth. God's judgments during the Tribulation include a rise in a global dictator whom the Apostle John calls the Antichrist, 1 John 2.18. Daniel prophesies that the Antichrist will rise to power out of the people who currently comprise the European Union, Daniel 9.26-27. Russia and the Middle East would no longer be world players due to God's crushing hand during the Gog-Magog War. And since the world's current superpower, the United States of America, appears to have sat out the Gog-Magog War, this shows a weakening in the West, possibly due to the rapture or a financial collapse, Ezekiel 38.13. China's strength is only foretold to rise at the end of the Tribulation, so that leaves a power vacuum in the world at the onset of the Tribulation, Revelation 16.12. The remaining world power could only be the revived Roman Empire, waiting right there to fulfill the power vacuum, as Daniel 2 prophesied. The Bible describes that during the tribulation there will be four dominant religions. Christianity will continue made up of those tribulation saints who accepted Christ after the rapture of the church. Then there's Judaism, for the Antichrist spends much of his time persecuting both the tribulation saints and the Jews. Revelation describes a harlot religion, potentially a conglomeration of world religion that ride on the back of the Antichrist, so to speak. She seems in charge, but the Antichrist is just using her for his own ends. True to form, halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist violently embarks on stomping out all competing religions, and he sets himself up solely to be worshipped. Surprisingly, considering Islam's might in the world today, no mention of Islam is made during the tribulation. 
For a religion that is based on having to destroy one's enemies for Allah's honor, and then Allah so conclusively loses every single end-time war, a strongly viable case can be made that these three end-time wars are going to gut the faith of many Muslims before the tribulation begins. And that third and final war that should end Islam is called the conventional war. Revelation 6 reveals that the Antichrist, after he assumes power, begins annihilating a quarter of the world's population, which can be nearly 2 billion people in today's numbers. When one religion cannot have another religion competing with it, especially a militaristic religion like Islam, which demands no other religions exist besides itself, the only path ahead is to annihilate all the competition. The biggest populations of Muslim in the world live not in the Middle East, as many believe, but in the Asian nations of Indonesia and Bangladesh. A likely scenario explains how the Antichrist spends the beginning of his reign annihilating Islam's influence within these largely populated regions so that no competing religion sets itself up against a true global ruler. How tragic that 2 billion people will die from the Antichrist conventional war and the horrible consequences of consolidating his global empire, Revelation 6-8. But after that war, Islam's dominance would have disappeared from the world map. In following these three biblical end-time wars to their ultimate end, the conclusion reveals that Islam as a force in the world does not have much of a future left to it. Should even this prophetic scenario not play out as the framework proposes, the inevitable return of Jesus Christ will put an end to all competing religions, but the worship of Jehovah God alone. A Psalm 83 war could break out at any minute, along with the destruction of Damascus, as prophesied in Isaiah 17. These world-shaken events could occur at any minute. The Gog-Magog alliance of nations already exists. Europe is so fragile that they're ready for a strong leader to take over. Every prophetic peace has fallen into place, and so according to biblical eschatology, Islam has very little time left to it. Islam's Salvation Some Christians struggle over whether it is Christian to hate Islam. Not its inherence, naturally, but the system. After all, look at what the system Islam does to its people. It enslaves over a billion people to a religion that tells them that they must kill themselves to be assured of going to paradise. Satan rules Islam, and so far, he's gotten away with countless murders and atrocities committed in vilifying the name of God. Islam has been a driving force in the murder of Christians and Jews, all in the name of Allah. God's magnificent and holy name has been tarnished by the teachings of a demonically possessed false prophet who has inspired 14 centuries of blood and violence. Islam even subjugates its own people, and should Islam gain true dominance in the world, it would plunge society back into the Dark Ages. Islam has sent people to hell by the billions. As terrible as Islam is, it also presents the church with some of the greatest opportunities for evangelism in all of the world if the Christian knows how to evangelize the Muslim. After all, as a missionary to Muslims, John Wirtzema points out, let's understand that God's desire is for all men to be saved, including all of the Muslims of the world. Many Muslims are truly seeking to understand God, but greatly fear that in searching outside of Islam, they will be accused of apostasy, which is the equivalency of treason, and risk being ostracized from their family and community, disinherited, unable to find work, written off as dead, pressure placed upon their families, risk torture, and even face a grueling death. When Muslims approach Christians in the hopes of converting them to Islam, the door of opportunity opens to the Christian evangelist for sharing the real Jesus and the gospel. The following are six different ways the Christian can reach a Muslim for Christ. 
the Bible is okay to read. Muhammad permitted Muslims to read the Bible, and the Christian evangelists can tell them that. Surah 5, 46-47 and 68. Give anyone the word of God, and they read it, and the Holy Spirit will speak through the scriptures. In the experience of a former missionary to Muslims in the Southeast Asia, J.D. Greer, Muslims most frequently cite exposure to a Bible as instrumental in their conversion. Another church planner to Muslim lands, Greg Livingston, also champions the establishment of allowing the reading of the Bible as the basis before any gospel message is shared, adding that in doing so, the evangelist must also present no threat, be respectful, open, sincere, frank, in freedom, and in trust. Give a Muslim a Bible in their own language and let the Holy Spirit lead them to Christ. Number two, the life of Christ. When the life of Muhammad is exposed, a killer, a murderer, a wife stealer, a child molester, a liar who was exhorted to seek forgiveness for his faults, as Surah 16 and others say, when put up against Jesus Christ who was sinless, loving, holy, and died for humanity, as Surah 345 says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21, the Muslim is shocked. They cannot believe the differences. The Isa of the Quran is not at all the Jesus of the Bible. Of course, anyone is attracted to someone who lays down their life for them. Tell what Jesus did for them by dying for their sins. As a missionary to Muslims, Carl Baderas concludes, The person of Jesus, knowing him and understanding the Father, is the most positive force for change in the world. Number three, the love of God. God is love, but for Muslims, they never know love from Allah whatsoever. They see these mullahs on TV who are angry and yelling all the time. It is a religion of hate. As Palestinian Christian scholar Anish Sharash points out, there are 99 excellent names of God in the Quran, but not one is love or father. Brothers Ugun and Amir Kainer, both converts from Islam to Christianity, know that the only use of intimacy in the Quran refers to the threat of judgment. And so, quote, the Quran is saying, Allah is as close as your jugular vein, Surah 5016. A Muslim, like any person, wants to know love, and Christians can reach them by telling them about the love of God. As Shirash adds, In the Bible, you're not introduced to a God who is a dictator, who demands that you become his slave. God instead is presented as a loving father who wants you and me and the whole world to become his sons. Four, the assurance of salvation. Muslims have no assurance of salvation except for one thing, and that is to die a martyr. To kill infidels by one's death is the only assurance they have of salvation. Why wonder why certain Muslims are willing to blow themselves up in the name of Allah? Martyrdom is the only way they can be assured of entering into paradise. Christians can instead assure them that through Jesus Christ, who died once and all for their sins, that they can have the assurance of living in heaven forever with their loving Father. John 5.24 and 647, 10.27-28, 17.3, Romans 6.23, 1 John 5, 9-13, all great verses. Number five, the grace of God. Islam is like wearing shackles to a Muslim. They feel it. They know it. The reason for this, as one Muslim converted to Christianity explained, Islam, however, is fundamentally a theology of deeds and not redemption than Christianity. There is no Jesus who atones for the sins of man to free them from the bondage of their old nature. Their salvation depends on their deeds and the mercy of God. Actually, Islamic theology advocates a rewards-based eschatology where man's eternal life is determined by his human effort. But when Christians teach them about the God, grace of God, a magnificent doctrine, that there is nothing anyone can do to save themselves, that God did it all, and that Jesus Christ paid for mankind's sins on the cross, then they feel relieved. As the Cana brothers know firsthand, for most converts from Islam, the finished and atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross speaks powerfully to Muslims. 
Christians can look back at the time when they had become saved and remember how it felt to have the weight of their sins and works lifted. A Muslim is looking for that weight to be lifted off them as well. Number six, a relationship with God. Learning one can have a personal relationship with God is one of the best ways to reach a Muslim for Christ. The Islamic doctrine of Tawhid declares that there is an impassable gap between creator and creation so that man can neither know God nor describe him by human language. But Christians enjoy a relationship with God and not some distant, unknowable being who can care less about them and wants their death to prove their faith, but a heavenly father who loves them and cares for them. As Abd al-Masih reveals, the redemptive act of Christ on the cross that reconciled man and creation with God and recovered the lost relationship restored also the eschatological hope of all the redeemed. In conclusion, Christians often fear sharing the gospel with Muslims, but believers in Christ can find courage and confidence when knowing what Islam believes and how to properly evangelize the Muslim. As Bible prophecy reveals, the false Islamic system will inevitably be destroyed. Muslims will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ by the multitudes, and the entire world will finally meet the real Jesus of the Bible upon his return. Until then, Christians will continue to be a witness, sharing the good news of the Almighty God and Savior and His great salvation.